0: grace, mercy, and peace be yours in abundance from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus prayed. You probably thought I was going to say something else right there, don't you? Well, there was a lot, an awful lot of things that were going on that particular night, that last night when Jesus spent the few remaining moments with his disciples, Monday, Thursday. That's where our gospel lesson brings us back to today, and there's still so much for us, even now, our Lord's disciples, ancient disciples, and us modern disciples. There's so much for us to go back to and now reinterpret or perhaps try to understand for the first time, but now in the glorious light of our Lord's resurrection from the dead. And now, with our Easter eyes, and as well, people who are aided by the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. When we celebrate that next week with Pentecost, of course, but historically that happened, and the Holy Spirit is already helping us go back and understand what our Lord was telling his disciples. You may recall that comforting promise that Jesus gave the disciples just a little while earlier in that same upper room discourse where our gospel lesson comes from. And this was the Lord's promise. These things, said Jesus, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will come and teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's from John chapter 14. And so the disciples did go back to the things that Jesus said earlier, back to those things that seemed so perplexing at the time, but now they were all sort of starting to fall into place for them. It was coming together. That night, the night of the Last Supper, with Jesus predicting his betrayal, his denial, his dying and rising, that must have been actually a very perplexing night indeed at the time. It must have been downright upsetting, actually, to the disciples, and understandably so. Our text today from John 17 begins with the first verse, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's what it says. Well, what words? If you remember last week a little bit, we talked about the importance of context. And so those last words that Jesus had spoken to them at the end of John chapter 16 were as follows. Jesus told his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Verse 33 that's a promise, well, it's multifaceted there, isn't it? That's a promise you don't find too often superimposed onto those nice flowery uh, Thomas Kinkade cards with maybe a little English cottage and a picket fence and a path coming down to the road and then superimposed this Bible verse. In this world, you will have tribulation. You don't hear that promise off-quoted by those prosperity preachers either, that you uh, hear whenever you're channel surfing. I'm sure you don't stop too long. No, they'd have you believe that every good and faithful Christian will rather walk around the rest of their lives on a cushion of air after you get baptized or after you give them a donation, as the case may be. But of course, the rest of that verse from John 16:33 is a very hopeful part. But be of good cheer, Jesus adds. I have overcome this world. That sounds like beautiful music to our ears now, but it must have sounded quite like the dissonant chord when Jesus first spoke it on that same night in which he got arrested in Gethsemane. That didn't make sense when he said it back then to any of the disciples still hanging around close enough to see what was about to go down with the beatings and the scourging and mocking that Jesus suffered on his way to the cross. This horrible scene looked nothing like Jesus had overcome any of this world or any of the evil that the devil would dole out. Instead of inspiring his disciples to take heart, the scene rather incited them to take flight. That promise that you will have trouble in this world must have haunted them, going around and around in their memory. A curse more than any sort of comfort, as we know it. But earlier that same night, Monday Thursday, in that same upper room, I told you there was an awful lot that went on just that one night. I mean, do you recall when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet, what happened, for example? Peter objects. Peter tells Jesus, Oh, Lord, not my feet. I should be washing yours. Well, he didn't volunteer But Jesus says to Peter in that moment, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. That's John 13. So that must have started to sound like a refrain that Jesus kept offering, reminding his disciples over and over again, later. Down the road, you will get what I'm telling you. You will understand. And I will send the Holy Spirit who will bring these things to your remembrance. Then you will understand. Now, St. Paul will much later put his own words to this same concern, this same matter, the need, that is, for spirit-guided discernment. To the Corinthian church, Paul writes, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit, Paul continues, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 2. Not only does Jesus, in time, make good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit, which, he, which we commemorate, as I mentioned before, next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, but Jesus also dedicates himself to pray for his disciples, to pray for us. Just think about that for a second. On this night, this Maundy Thursday, Luke records Jesus assuring Simon of this. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear talk about Satan asking about someone, one of God's own, I can't help but think of Job, right? Remember that? Poor Job. And I get very anxious and nervous. I don't want to be one of those that the devil asks about. And I imagine neither were you. But if you ever were found on the devil's hit list, get this. But I have prayed for you, Simon. Insert your own name there. That's Jesus talking. Jesus praying for us. That's got to be worth an amen or a hallelujah before this Easter season is over, right? Well, we sang him so, but hallelujah. I'm also gearing too getting too psychic for Pentecost to come where the Spirit really starts moving and you hear those amens. Here's this verse just beyond our verses in John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So did you catch that? I pray also for those who will believe me through their message. So they preached in the first century to the second century post-apostolic fathers who preached to the anti-Nicene fathers who preached to the post-Nicene fathers down through the Middle Ages, Enlightenment, down to modern times, to you and me. We got that same message. And Jesus said he's praying for all of us who have heard that and received that. I'm not exactly sure what was first meant by Satan sifting Peter as wheat, but I don't think I want to find out either. It doesn't sound good. But with Jesus, who has defeated the devil, this Jesus, before whom all the demons tremble and run, this is the guy, fully God, fully man. He's the one I definitely want praying for me. Amen? And that brings us back to our gospel reading today. The first part of John 17. It's called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And on a night so filled with such monumental events, Jesus just instituted the Lord's Supper, for example. This not-so-private prayer that Jesus prays was the last thing that Jesus did in the upper room for his disciples before stepping out into the darkness towards the Garden of Gethsemane. The prayer Either it wasn't exactly private since the Holy Spirit brought it back word for word to the disciples' remembrance so you and I could read it. But it was no less intimate a prayer between the first person and the second person of the Holy Trinity. No less persons than that. These two who had shared their father and son perfect love for eternity. We are privy to the conversation they are having. Somewhere in that eternity past, if one could even describe it in that way, this father and son team, along with the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, they concocted this whole scheme of redemption before the foundation of the earth, a scheme to rescue us poor sinful beings on whom the devil has eyes for desert. And the plan that this righteous and merciful triune God put together for a fallen human race reached its climax right after Jesus' high priestly prayer was prayed. The next chapter in John 18, verse 1 reads, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples into the darkness. Now this mystery of the ages unfolds right underneath the devil's nose, yet the devil could not discern it. Because the gospel is spiritually discerned. What looked like a sure victory for the powers of darkness was their own undoing. It was their own doom. Who would have seen it coming that the death of Christ was the death of death? And the curse of the thorn-crowned one on the tree who was hanging there was the end of the curse for Adam's wayward race. The penitent thief on the cross. Jesus' right-hand side, he averted hell that day. Hell that the Bible says was created for the devil and his angels. But it could also accommodate human rebels who are just as insistent on going there as the devils. But for that penitent thief, Jesus promised him paradise. Paradise restored. The condemnation that he had, was canceled by the Lord Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross. There is therefore, Paul says in Romans, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This was the glory to which Jesus referred at the start of his upper room discourse, John chapter 13. After Judas left to betray Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. This is the glory of the cross Jesus is talking about. Jesus told one Pharisee, and by the way, uh, one who would actually come to believe in him later on, talking about Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus at night, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. It's John 3, 14 and 15. And you know what verse comes next? John 3, 16. But who would have thought a Savior would come in the likeness of a serpent? Who would have thought crucified gory turns out to be redemptive glory? Christ's redemptive glory now opens the glory of heaven and the new earth, complete with glorified bodies, immortal and without corruption, even as Jesus himself, the first fruits of the resurrection, presented to his disciples and hundreds of witnesses his glorified body, like the kind we will get when it's our time. There are different kinds of glory for, to be sure. St. Paul talks about that in his resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. But for our purposes here in John 17, we hear Jesus refer to the glory of the cross and the glory that awaits those who trust in the cross. And those are two different types of glory. He begins his high priestly prayer with, Father, the hour has come. What hour? Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is what he began the Upper Room Discourse with, and now is the Son of Man glorified. And he's talking about Jesus fulfilling what he came to do, to die on the cross for your sins and mine, and for the sins of the entire world. And to cry out, my God, my God, why is you forsaking me? This is the glory of the cross. Jesus didn't experience this glory before, but before even coming to this earth. He had the glory of being in the presence, the majestic presence of the triune God. That's the other glory that Jesus refers to in his high pri- priestly prayer. And it's restorative. That is, just as the penitent thief is welcomed into paradise restored, Jesus, the God man, is restored in his divine majesty, the majesty that he left when he humbled himself and came to be a servant. And obedient even to death on a cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the other kind of glory. But there is one mind-boggling difference now. The seat of divine majesty at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, it is now and forever shall be occupied by the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, yet who is now at the very same time fully man. The resurrected, ascended, and glorified Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, representing us, manhood, human beings, the human race who trust in him. That's my, I can't get my mind around that. The same Lord Jesus Christ who interceded in prayer for his disciples in the upper room and is now interceding in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And he's interceding for you and me today and for all who call upon him. And we are privy to at least a little part of his intercessory prayer for us because it's right there in his intercessory prayer in John 17 that we read. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. What a radical thought, and what a wonderful truth when it comes to pass fully. Hebrews 7.25 puts it very succinctly about Jesus, our high priest. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them, unquote, and amen. And as we close out our Easter season, we need to do it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.